The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. morning we're continuing our look at the Sermon on the Mount, a subject we've looked at before years, years ago. Certainly in the past, I would imagine many times in the ministry of this church, the pastors have turned to the Sermon on the Mount because it's a most important part of Jesus teaching the longest consecutive sermon or teaching session we have from our Lord. And it needs to be remembered what it is. It's not a way to obey a group of rules and say, if I've obeyed these rules, I must be a Christian. It rather is an indicator of the behavior of who are Christ's disciples. Those who are his disciples, who have his spirit in them, behave these ways, do these things, have these characteristics about them. So having looked at the Beatitudes in the early part of chapter 5, We've transitioned to various case examples where people were glad to obey the law outwardly, but yet their hearts and their minds were far from it. And Jesus said, what's most important is what's going on in your mind. And so we come to that similarly in another example of how we speak. And we pick up Matthew 5, beginning at verse 33, with Jesus as the spokesman. Again, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair of yours white or black, Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is God's word, and it's spoken to us today to seek and obey. Now, you might say I want to impress you that I spend my week among the great theologians so I could start out with a quote from someone like John Owen or J.I. Packer or a great impressive theologian. I'm going to start out with a theologian that at least makes an impression on children. And one of the most delightful children's books I know of were, I love the books of the late Ted Geisel, Dr. Seuss. I've read this one to my grandchildren. I dare say you have probably also. The story of Horton the Elephant, great theologian. Horton, you remember, was a simple-minded, rather naive pachyderm who thought in clear categories and spoke accordingly. One day, a bird had laid an egg in her nest in a little spindly tree. Horton was passing by, and the bird engaged Horton in the idea that she needed a vacation, I guess, as I remember it. She wanted to go someplace where the sun was shining and 
and just have some time off from this tedious task of sitting on a nest waiting for her egg to hatch. So she was able to talk Horton into doing this for her. And you had the humorous picture of this great big elephant with a tree, little tree bent over and the big elephant sitting on the egg, which he promised he would faithfully do. Well, people came by, the seasons passed, animals came by, I guess, and some laughed at Horton and said, you fool, how did she ever talk you into doing that? She's down there in Florida on the beach having a great time, and here you are tending her nest. And Horton said, that doesn't matter. I promised I would do this. And others came and just, you know, they came, the icicles were hanging off his trunk in the winter, and he still sat on the nest. And you probably can remember, this is going to be a participatory exercise, the famous line of Horton, the elephant, who gave his promise. Okay, chime in with me. I meant what I said, and I said what I meant. An elephant's faithful 100%. See, I know you all have been reading great theologians. I knew you knew that. I think Horton, silly as the story might be, speaks very well of the theme of our text here in the words of Scripture. Talk is cheap in our day. All kinds of talk goes on. It's amazing when you realize all the TV channels that are full of talk. Uh, Some of us actually lived in a day when there were three channels, and if a show wasn't on those three channels, you didn't watch TV. I actually grew up in a unusual situation in the Buffalo, New York suburbs where we could get two channels from Canada. But guess what? They had only the American shows on. So you, you didn't really even get variety out of that. Talk is cheap. Hype and spin. People saying things to deceive, political slogans. Right now we've been engaged in a war of two candidates for the primary of running for governor and my goodness, they can say the exact opposite things at each other, and everybody's trying to figure out who's saying what's true. Well, today in Matthew five thirty-three to 37, we look at the fourth of six case examples where strict legalists from the Jewish law, the Old Testament law, had said various things in time past, and they were great at viewing the, or observing the externals of the law, the letter of the law, but they, in most cases, had completely lost an understanding of what the commandments were even for. And now Jesus turns to another thing, to the swearing of oaths, which was actually, I guess, a a big subject in that time among the Jewish lawgivers and law keepers. And Jesus takes this up, you know, of what was being said and done. And he said, you have heard that it was said of old, You shall not swear falsely, but perform before the Lord all you have sworn. Well, that was good. Nobody would argue with that. But it was the way that oaths and promises were being given and used to even deceive or cover wrong motives that he was troubled about. Oaths were in use because human beings are natural-born liars, deceivers. We twist and turn things. And we actually hide behind our abuse of the truth by speaking oaths sometimes. Horton the Elephant was actually a fairly astute theologian who summarized this text of Scripture that Christians 
should mean what they say and say what they mean. Now, that seems like a very obvious lesson, but it's one that has many applications to various aspects of our lives. Jesus began here with this debate among the legal minds who were asking themselves, well, when is an oath appropriate? When should I use it? Uh, whose name should I, should I say, I swear that's true on my grandmother's grave, or what? And I think the first point that we have to look at here is that oaths must never become a cloak for evading the truth. What seems to have been happening was given a hint later in this same gospel, Matthew 23, 16, there Jesus was actually striking out at the Pharisees who did these things. And he said, Woe to you blind guides who say, If someone swears by the temple, that is nothing. But if he swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound to his oath. You blind fools! He who swears by the temple swears by him who dwells in it. They, they actually seem to have gradations by which one kind of oath wasn't regarded as too serious, but another kind was. Bring it into our day. What if, uh, you know, Westminster Presbyterian people said, well, I swear this is true by the fish on top of the steeple of Westminster Church. And then another guy comes and he says, well, I've got a more serious one than that. I swear by this silver chalice that's on the communion table of Westminster Church. And the code that they're using is, well, the fish isn't as important as the communion vessel. Or that's at least where they were in the first century. They were using these oaths foolishly uh, where they really didn't mean what they were saying. And they were abusing the truth. And Jesus is trying to make the point of you can't compartmentalize life and speech that way. You're speaking before God who always hears your speech and it always is the great witness of everything that you have to say. Now, surprisingly, the Old Testament Scripture never forbids taking an oath in God's name. In fact, there are many examples where such things are done with God's approval. Leviticus 1.12 has a declaration of the Lord saying, don't swear by my name falsely. That wasn't saying don't swear by the name of God. It was saying don't do it with a false intent. Numbers 30, verse 2 says, When a man vows a vow to the Lord, he shall not break his word. Here again, the point isn't that you should never make a vow and say, In the name of the Lord, I vow to do this. But make sure you're not doing that idly, intending to just use that as a cover for your lies. The third commandment from Moses, of course, says in Exodus 20, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That, that has at least a twofold meaning. It, it for, prohibits cursing or swearing, which takes God's name and actually becomes a curse. That, of course, is, is wrong in the worst way. But I think it also covers, and most scholars would say it also covers, the idea you're taking God's name in vain if you, again, swear an oath. By, as God is God in heaven, I will do this. You better mean what you're saying. You better not just be idly using that. Otherwise, you're assaulting, you're insulting the name of God in whose name you've taken a vow or an oath. We ask the question, did, what exactly did Jesus mean? Did, should we be absolute literalists in reading what he says? Do not swear at all. 
do not swear an oath at all, that is. There are some people who think that is an absolute, literal command, and therefore if they come into a courtroom and they're asked to put their hand, I don't think they put their hand on a Bible in most courtrooms anymore today, but they do take an oath, so help me, or something like that. They won't even take the simplest oath because they think they're told here, don't do that. Anabaptists, some Anabaptist groups, I know Quakers, will not swear an oath in a courtroom. Well, if the literal understanding here is all that this is about, that would be kind of easy to dispense with. But it, it seems that it's more than that because there are examples, even in a courtroom-type setting, biblically, where God himself takes an oath by his own name. Numerous times, Genesis 22, the Lord told Abraham, I have sworn, I have covenanted, and I will bless you. Or Hebrews 6.17, which has the Lord God swearing by his own name. And he says, uh, or the author of Hebrews says, because there was no authority higher than himself by which he could swear. Matthew 26.63 has Jesus in part of his uh, mock trial procedures that he was put through. And the high priest said to him, I charge you, Jesus... Under oath before the living God, tell us if you are the Christ. And Jesus didn't respond and say, I never respond under oath. No, he said, yes, it is as you say. In other words, he was asked under oath and he responded under oath. Paul, on numerous occasions, made statements like his saying, I call upon God as my witness. So there is oath-taking in the Bible itself where even the persons of the Trinity are involved. Jesus was involved. Paul was involved. It doesn't seem that you can fully defend the whole idea that never ever do you take an oath, but certainly Jesus is saying it would be better if you didn't have to do that. I don't think he says if it's required of you that you have to put it aside. Our Westminster Confession of Faith has a comment on it. In chapter 22, it makes this conclusion there after a discussion. You can look it up if you want. It's in the back of the hymnal, chapter 22 of the Confession of Faith. The name of God alone is that by which men should swear and then do so only with fear and great reverence in matters of great weight if an oath is warranted and any oath imposed by a lawful authority, a court of law, should be taken and kept. I think that's true to the sense of what Jesus was getting at here, not using oaths simply casually or to sort of say, well, now I'm serious, but if I don't take an oath, I'm not serious. Well, secondly, I want to drive more towards the heart of what he's teaching here. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. I think of what David said in Psalm 51.6, that God desires truth in the inward parts. He wants us to speak truth through and through. Let truth saturate everything we have to say. Certainly, God himself is true. Back on Palm Sunday, I looked at the whole issue of truth and facts and so on leading up to Easter and the great fact of the resurrection. And think of Romans where Paul speaks of the cardinal sin of rebelling against God as suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, turning the truth 
some way that is unauthorized so that it becomes something else. God is the true one, and he wants truth, transparency, and integrity to characterize people in whom his truth resides because his Holy Spirit resides in us. And what is the Holy Spirit called? The Spirit of Truth. I once was on a Presbytery committee, another Presbytery, another time, where several of us were called into a troubled church with a deep chasm of divide between a minority group, although it was a sizable minority, and a vocal, angry minority who were rebelling and having a big trouble with their session, their elders. They literally wanted us to come in and say their will would have been that we throw out all their elders. We didn't do that. But uh, they said things that, that shocked me as we met with this group. They were so rebellious and so angry over things that had happened. And I, I don't know if I have the man's exact words, but their leader said something with a red face. He was very angrily saying to us, we all know that our elders in this session are constantly deceiving the congregation. They withhold facts. They manipulate the truth. In short, they lie all the time. Wow. I mean, that's pretty poisonous for a, a sizable minority of people within a church to say, our leaders are liars, and we don't believe them. Anything they say, I, I remember that didn't end so well, frankly, but uh, I remember going away from there thanking God that I certainly didn't serve in a church where there was that kind of fierce distrust of the leaders and elders who led a congregation. Trust is the basis of leadership. Trust is the currency that leaders need, especially in the, in the household of God. We, aren't, we don't have police force that we can send in to say, here, we said this, you better believe it or we'll arrest you. That's not the way it works in church leadership. You have to have people trusting you and trusting that you're speaking truth as best you know how to do it. Well, there are many applications we could make of this. Do we have truth in the inward parts in the way we deal with a husband or a wife? You think back to the wedding day when we promised that we would cherish someone, love someone, keep someone, be honest with them, bear burdens together. Is that something you just do on your wedding and then you forget about moving down the road 10, 15, 30 years later? Are you still there till death do us part? Or is it until I lose interest and find somebody else? What, are the, what about the integrity of our vows on our wedding? Do we take that out when we come to a significant or any anniversary? Certainly should be a time husbands, wives, both of you, that you think about, what have I promised to this one? They were pretty important things back there. How am I doing? Do I live transparently or am I keeping secrets from my spouse? Do I have manipulative designs against her or against him that are not clear and well understood between us? Do we talk things out or do we just turn our backs and ignore things we don't agree with? When you pledge yourself to any kind of a statement, today people think, well, okay, he said this, but in tomorrow's news release he'll say something different because everything's negotiable. You can always make a different deal. And even marriage vows can just be changeable based on the whims 
of emotion or I met somebody else more attractive. Every solemn vow we ever make, and they're not just at wedding times. or We make vows all the time. Don't you say, you know, I promise I'll pick you up at 7 o'clock? I still agonize. My, the son involved was at the early service, so I can say this, over a day when we were fairly new here, and uh, I stayed long at the end of a Thanksgiving Eve service talking with folks. I was a brand-new pastor and forgot that my son was working at Oregon Dairy almost two miles from our home, and I had pledged to pick him up at a specified time. And until I was heading home and pulling into our driveway, oh, I forgot Dan. And I took off towards Oregon Dairy, and halfway there I had a very disgusted son stalking home along Oregon Road, not very happy with his dad who didn't keep a promise. All kinds of promises we make. Are we good upon our word? Can we be counted on? I remember my Mennonite farmer grandfather, once I was with him, and he said, come on, let's, let's go. I have to go meet a man. The man's name was Eugene. And he said, Eugene promised me he would meet me at the feed store at 3 o'clock, and I'm buying something from him, and we just agreed to meet there. And I know he'll be there because this man always keeps his promises. Well, we got there. 3 o'clock went by. 3.15 went by, 3.30 went by. No cell phones in those days, no phone at the feed store either. And my grandfather finally turned for home, and, and I just remember him shaking his head. In his world, if you said you were going to do something, you did it. And he said, I just can't believe it. Eugene never breaks his word. And, and I was amazed at how my grandfather, a relatively trivial thing, and I'm sure the man just forgot, but it was very important to my grandfather that you were a person of your word. Consider how this comes up in very important realms, international relations, diplomacy. What can we do with the words of Vladimir Putin? Can we trust them entirely? What do we do with the words of Kim Jong-un? Hmm, he says, I'll get rid of my nuclear warheads. Oh, that sounds good, nice thing. How many caverns does he have in the hills of North Korea where missiles can be hidden or worked on? You know, the whole issue of diplomacy and, and relations between nations is based on trust and verification. That was a famous statesman's view, what a secretary of state or a head of military uh, affairs had to do. They would say, trust but verify. You know, okay, believe the person as far as you can, but check it out. Make sure that what they say is somehow valid. Don't you know in business, or you surely know in real estate or trade, buying anything that costs any amount of money, we build layers of contracts and verifiable things around people's pledges. All right, you're going to buy my house? Very good. Now, let, we'll sit down at a table, and we're going to sign our names 55 times apiece. That's probably conservative, actually. Really, I remember the first house we ever bought, honestly, I think we signed our names six times. The last time, 60, easily. And so we've got to have all these, and of course you've read all those papers. You know, minuscule eight-point type that you need a magnifier, and you're signing away, signing away, and you're trusting somebody put this, somebody knows what this says, and I'm supposed to agree to it. And that's going to mean that an agreement or a promise is backed up with some kind of legal verification. 
We do this all the time. Why do we have to sign all those papers? There's a simple answer. Because people are liars. And if people weren't liars, we wouldn't have to build contractual agreements around all these things lest we might lose our money or or lose the deal somehow. Well, isn't it amazing that into a world where talk is cheap, where people are deceptive, where many lie all the time as second nature, where even good folks with right hearts will shade the truth or say what is best to their advantage, all you teenagers with social media sites, when you portray yourself on your social media site, of course you portray yourself exactly the way you are, right? No exaggeration. No, uh, you know, I have a great talent in this or I'm about to break into Hollywood movies or something. Uh, if, if you had to just be known as the person you really are, what would that be like on social media? That's not a world I spend any time on, but I hear there's a little bit of shading the truth out there. Into a world like this, Jesus Christ came as God's final word, God's straight word, God's truth, and God's life. He was the straight talk of heaven. And whatever he revealed was absolutely transparent. You know, it's a big problem actually sometimes, and some of you have encountered this with friends that you try to tell them the good news of the gospel. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Put your trust in him as the Lord of heaven and earth. The simple verse like, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Or confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead. And you'll be saved. And you have a friend or somebody listening to that and you say, that's just too simple. It couldn't be that simple. Well, isn't it amazing that it is that simple? The gospel is God's straight truth, transparent. You don't need a theological dictionary to figure it out. It is the straight word of God, and it is understandable when it is received and believed. And so Jesus is saying here, when my spirit, the spirit of truth, lives in my disciples, they're going to be people of truth, and their lives are going to be reflective mirrors of what is true. Not, a, a, you know, a huge complex uh, ball of chaotic falsehoods. A lie wrapped in a mystery, you know, lap, wrapped in a conundrum. Our lives shouldn't be that way. The Word of God spoken by us and lived out by us should be so reliable and so clear that it makes plain statements to people. Transparent words without guile come forth from people who are new creations in Christ. Others won't have to be second-guessing all the time. Is he, is he lying here? Is he fooling me? Is that really what he's going to do? Paul said in Ephesians 4:22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and be made new in the attitude of your minds. Therefore, you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully with your neighbor, for we are members of one body. The Holy Spirit 
is the spirit of truth. The reason I believe this passage is in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus was saying, you are vessels of the Holy Spirit who speaks only truth. Your lives should reflect truth, should reflect straight, meaningful, transparent, without guile conversation that God may be glorified. Maybe Horton the Elephant wasn't so naive after all. How many of God's chosen people in Christ can join Horton in declaring, I meant what I said. I said what I meant. A disciple of Jesus is faithful 100%. Thanks be to God. Father, in a world of spin and hype and falsehood, people build resumes that are completely fictitious and turn in expense reports that do not accord with reality. All kinds of violations of truth are going on. Father, forgive us for where we've been part of this world where people just say everything's negotiable. Every man has his price. Help us to speak honestly, transparently, as you have done to us in giving us Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.